everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Siwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. I have been working quite a bit the past few weeks. I just did a quick virtual artist talk with my good friend Justin Favela for the Rogers Art Loft residency I am currently part of. I've also been recording quite a number of interviews with the Las Vegas community, so keep an eye out for these episodes in the upcoming months. Also on July 30th and July 14th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'll be doing live interviews with Jennifer Clevin and Dr. Erica Bod also part of the Rogers Art Loft Residency, with a quick Q&A afterwards. I'll post the links on social media as the dates get closer, and I hope to see a few of you there. But for today, I am interviewing my good friend and the amazing artist Yvette Mayorka. Yvette is a multidisciplinary artist based in Chicago, Illinois, who interrogates the broad effects of militarization within and beyond the U.S. border, intervenes in the colonial legacies of art history. She fuses confectionery labor with found images to explore the meaning of belonging. Yvette got her PFA with a minor in anthropology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and an MFA from the School of Art Institute of Chicago. She has shown in numerous places such as the National Museum of Mexican Art, LACMA, the DePaul Art Museum, and most recently, the El Museo de Barrio. I met Yvette a few years ago in Miami, and we formed a special friendship that continues on to today. Yvette and I talk about Gloria Anzadua, the Nike Cortez, showing at art fairs, and key lime pies. Stay safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. <laughs> I'm a one-woman show right now, yeah, but it, it's been something that I've been thinking about, yeah, that I need, I need to hire someone to help me. But I think that's another layer to me also that it like, it's really hard for me to ask for help. And so I have just been kind of like running that through my head, how I would go about it. And since I'm type A, like how (laughs) could I success, you know, have somebody manage somebody basically to do all the things that I do without being super annoying and type A about it. Yeah. (laughs) As you get older, do you find that are you able to let go of it a little more? Because I always felt like when I was younger, I needed to everything myself. But as I get older, I'm like, I don't know if, if I have the time to feel like I need to do everything myself. That's sort of my attitude yeah. as I get older. I think I'm starting to get there slowly, which is why I've been like, you know, starting to consider it. And I'm like, yeah, Yvette, like you can't do everything. It's okay. <laughs> maybe, and maybe it doesn't even have to be like up to... I don't know, whatever crazy imagined standards I have in my head all the time about everything. Yeah. I think I am getting to the point where I'm like, wow, it sucks. I have another day that I can't be in the studio and, you know, doing the things that are really exciting for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, your work is is amazing. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of of your work. And, you know, it was funny because, you know, I met you in the Fountainhead in Miami and actually really didn't get to see any of your work in real life, right? Uh, I mean, we spent all our time there, I don't know, taking Ubers to different events and seeing weird shit in <laughs> Miami. 
<laughs> so I, I felt like there was very little like art art making during our time there, but I was able to finally see your work in, in uh, Expo Chicago. Um, and, you know, that was the first time I saw it in its like full glory. And it was it was amazing. And so, yeah, that's why I was really excited to also talk to you. And so before we go into that, I was curious, you know, if you could talk a little bit about your origin story and how you got to, you know, becoming the artist that you are today. Yeah. And you're so right. It's so funny. Like it was such a interesting, like distinctive kind of residency that <laughs> we were so engaged with each other, like us three, me, you and Justin. And yeah. I hadn't actually viewed any of our work in person. Yeah. I think maybe just like for that one open like studio visit opening that we had that we were sharing the work that we were doing, but we were having like so many conversations about so many other things and just yeah. like being friends for, you know, those that time that, yeah. yeah, the work was kind of like something that we hadn't touched, I guess. Yeah. But um, my origin story, um, I was born in Moline, Illinois which is two and a half hours away from where I am right now. I'm currently in Chicago, so it's Midwest America. And the reason I was born there was um, because after my parents immigrated from Jalisco, Mexico to Texas and then Chicago, they were here for, I think, around 15 years. And then there was uh, one of my dad's cousins worked at John Deere Tractors, okay. uh, which is in Moline. And so there was like talk about Moline having more opportunities and jobs and, mm -hmm. you know, overall just like a quieter life. And it's interesting thinking about Adam Toledo today. And, and another reason why uh, my family left Chicago was because they were living in a little village and my brother was like starting to get into trouble. And so mm -hmm. that was like their, another one of the main reasons that they wanted to get out of the city is to sort mm -hmm. of avoid, you know, everything that would come from that. And so yeah, my dad worked at Tyson Meats for 25 years until the first year of college. He waited until I started college for him to retire since mm. I'm the youngest of five. And so grew up in Moline and, you know, there's actually like a really big um, Latinx community there that's from either Guanajuato or Jalisco where we're from and I think it's just been like word of mouth from you know family members that made their way from Chicago there that has yeah. grown the community and so yeah I grew up around like a really diverse group of people in high school basically everybody that I went to elementary school with I went to high school with and so really? you know yeah we knew each other like my siblings my oldest siblings like went to school with my younger, sorry, my younger sibling went to school with like my oldest siblings, friends mm. and so on and mm -hmm, so forth. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the kids of, you know, different generations, like we all know each other. Wow. And at that, at Moline high school, there was an art teacher that was like super supportive, Mr. DeJoya. And actually he was my, one of my siblings art teacher. And um, he, you know, did the, ran like the art program, had an AP advanced course that seniors could take for art. And, you know, he was amazing because he would invite a lot of different professors and, you know, people that were part of different art schools, like in the Midwest to come talk to us about what it would be like to be an artist and go to yeah. school for it. Wow. And I had always seen both of my siblings like drawing. My brother wanted to be like a video game designer. I, I remember him like saying that he really wanted to go to the Art Institute and pretty adamant on doing so. But, you know, then 
that didn't happen. And, and my sister was always drawing clothes and wanted to be a fashion designer. And so I was always kind of like around them creating. And I think that's where I felt too, like I could be an artist. So then right. having like that support at home and looking up to them and wanting to do whatever they were doing all the time. And then going to high school and having a teacher that was like, you can do it. And this is what it would look like if you happen to pursue it. I think was just really inspiring and helpful and like thinking about doing this, you know, because as a first generation, my, I think my parents were just excited for me to go to college and I basically could do whatever I want. So there wasn't necessarily any pressure on like pursuing a specific field or career, which felt liberating at the same time too. And I'm sure it was shocking when, you know, I was like, I'm going to college I'm going to be the first one to go to college I'm going for art (laughs) (laughs) and your parents weren't worried they no they weren't I think there was like a little bit of like confusion of like what are you going to do with it I think my dad was like you're going to be a teacher in art was Mm -hmm. like his understanding of it which is you know semi-true but that's a whole other conversation but yeah I think that they were just happy that I was like going with it and, and doing something that I loved and that they saw that I really enjoyed doing and they were happy that I was going to college. So what was your mom doing? She was a stay at home mom around that time. Yeah. Yeah. So she worked here in Chicago um, at Marshall Fields for like those 15 years. Both of them worked there. And then once they moved to Moline, she was a stay at home mom for most of the time. Okay. So yeah, five kids. It is a full-time job. It is a full-time job. And I mean, by that point, it was just me and my two eldest siblings because the two oldest were already gone by that time, married, because there's a 20-year gap between me and my oldest sister. Mm, Wow. So they're kind of like my, I always say they're like my American parents, my (laughs) sister Lupe and my brother Javi, because, you know, they're my references to like American movies and music and like fashion. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then my parents are like my reference to, you know, everything else that's about yeah. like being Mexican. So. Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. like intergenerational knowledge happening within one family. Definitely. Yeah. You know, finished high school, felt, you know, like motivated, excited about pursuing. And actually, I was thinking about pursuing interior design. Which you kind of what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. Just maybe for a less utilitarian <laughs> reason. Yeah, yeah. And I applied to the School of Arts to Chicago. And I got in, but it was so expensive that there was no way I was going to be able to afford it. So I remember being like so sad about not being able to yeah. go to like my dream school. But then, you know, I had also applied to a couple other schools one of them being University of Illinois um, at Champaign-Urbana and I you know I received some scholarships to go there and so that was another you know money is always a reason for higher education where you can and can't go and so I decided to go there and pursue painting and through being at U of I like that was really amazing too I think I was surprised that all of the other courses and degrees that were offered would like influence my art making yeah, that I could yeah. start thinking about like you know border theory anthropology classes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Latino Latino studies as like yeah. another layer to making work so I think that was like the real benefit of going to a school like that like being right. able to take so many other courses right. and just being around other 
students too that are you know not just in the bfa program all right yeah so it seems like you had a quite diverse education instead of just solely from a painting background definitely yeah i was taking other courses i got a minor in anthropology mm -hmm. i took a whole semester class on neanderthals really studies and <laughs> like neanderthals you know skulls and bones and for an wow. entire semester which is really like now that i think back about it like yeah. that was such an amazing opportunity to do that for a whole semester yeah and like related unrelated to my work but you know i think a cool experience i mean i think you are like many ways a cultural anthropologist the way that you are looking at this sort of cross-section you know of latinx culture within chicago and within this changing cultural landscape yeah yeah you're right that's, that's sort of like how i i kind of see it at least i mean also within the lens of you know as you're talking about border theory migration and and the way that different cultures are formed you know i think one has to look at it from a certain angle and you can do it from a you know a white gay sort of perspective with the anthropology that also informs the way that you tackle these topics and the way that you look at these topics you're right. And um, it was another way for me to understand my history too, my family history, taking those classes in anthropology and um, the border theory classes were part of my minor. And I remember it was like the first time that I started to actually find out about scholars, feminist Latinx scholars that were writing about a lot of those things that I was interested in and talking about like my family history and yeah i think just having those references were so important like you know finding out about gloria Anzaldúa's book which yeah, i know yeah. a lot of other latinx writers yes it's yeah such a good book. you know it's such a good book such an important book and i think now it's a book that a lot of us often talk about as being like the first book that was like really formative you yeah, know, and our understanding yeah. of our identity and, and trying to sort of like formulate what we wanted to talk about in our work specifically. But yeah, that was really, really important. And also just, you know, learning about very important historical moments in U.S.-Mexico relations that mm -hmm. I had no idea about, you know, and, and sort of like inserting those into the longer history that I have been told from my parents about our migration, you know, like the labor that uh, my grandparents did and having like a specific timeline and dates for why those events happened the way that yeah. they did was also like really life-changing for me, mm -hmm. you know, trying to remember a moment that radicalized you and I feel like that was sort of the beginning to me yeah identifying that as like a, a life-changing moment mm -hmm. yeah it's just to know our history like that's very important yeah yeah I mean our history ties us both to the past and helps us understand the future and yeah I don't understand all these people who history not important it's just like idealized world that we can sort of like be unable to look at the history right that everything is sort of perfect now and yeah it's, it's strange exactly <laughs> I guess it's such a privilege to not have to, you yeah, know, or yeah. to not even want to look back yeah. at history. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then, so while you were in University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, you're painting, and then did you go directly to grad school? Yeah, so I went directly to grad school, which was okay. now looking back kind of crazy Insane. to do. <laughs> it was my last year that I started to think about going to grad school. And, you know, I was taking, I think, all those four years pretty seriously, but you know, 
I think because the last two years are strictly kind of like a studio practice, you have your own studio, mm-hmm. you're taking classes, but it's, you know, it's very independent. I really started to think about how to sustain my practice and what I was going to do after school, what city I wanted to be in. I, yeah. I always knew that I I wanted to be in Chicago um, and try to sustain my practice here. And so grad school just kind of felt like, you know, the right lead to do so. Right. Chicago's your home. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Moline is my home, but Chicago also felt like home, you know, because I had family here. I was always visiting Chicago and there's only so much that you can do in a small city like Moline. You know, I felt like I had big dreams that maybe couldn't necessarily be resolved there, but, you know, Chicago always felt like the closest place where maybe I could achieve that, like as a young person. Yeah. Um, so, and our Institute was like one of my dream schools, um, you know, for undergrad that I, I hadn't been able to um, accomplish. And so, yeah, I applied to grad school in, in, in painting and fiber um, and then decided to go into the fiber program, uh-huh. you know, because to me, it looked exciting to be able to work with various material, to not yeah, feel yeah. so confined to painting. And, and maybe it was also like my way of rejecting being in painting for four years that um, I know that, experimenting I know that <laughs> seemed exciting. And, and it was. And, you know, grad school, I felt like was two years of me experimenting, having yeah. studio visits with people in the city that I admired. Um you know, having conversations about my work, also feeling maybe restricted at times because Mm -hmm. certain audiences didn't want to have conversations that I wanted to have about my work. Mm -hmm. So I would say like two years of growth, but then also feeling distraught and whether or not my artwork was going to fit into this idea of like art history and the canon, but constantly being pushed by that, that idea, having that idea be placed onto me and my work but then me constantly like rejecting it and yeah uh, going against it and I think looking back like I'm really happy that I did that because I think during that time it can be so difficult to have like so many voices in your studio in your head about your practice and what way you should go and what is the correct form of work or yeah yeah you know what conversations are important which ones are not and I'm just really happy that I stuck to my voice and I think it's just because it was such a drastic thing to be a woman of color first generation go to grad school like go to college is such a big thing going to grad school is like huge that I was like I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want (laughs) you know and (laughs) not feel Damn. like I have to fit into this box that you want me to constantly. Yeah. And so is that where you started your piping? I started my piping in undergrad, actually. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, in undergrad. That that I would say like the last year I was working with frosting, with food, piping onto um, these like built totem structures. I guess I was sort of painting onto them. Now looking back, I was like yeah. applying paint onto yeah, yeah. a three surface but I felt like it was pretty radical <laughs> going against painting at the time <laughs> and um and then I continued that into grad school but yeah. then in grad school I was you know working with ceramics uh, lino cut printing fiber printing on fabric so many other different yeah. materials that I was exploring but then still um you know using my piping medium yeah yeah and then, do you remember how you came across that as a form of painting or anti-painting 
as you like to call it? Yeah, I guess because I was trying to reject painting in undergrad and felt like I was tired of like recreating master paintings in one specific mm-hmm. course. And it was like my punk way of <laughs> rejecting painting, <laughs> thinking about like the concept of my work that I was talking about like the American dream, yeah, sort yeah. of like imagined sweetness about mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. then referencing my mother's labor my father's labor I think naturally I just oh maybe I should use actual frosting in the work instead of like painting these candy land like paintings maybe I should actually use candy and now that I'm thinking about it I actually began with using actual candy that I was like attaching onto paintings and then Uh. from there I went to use like frosting on the sculptures Mm -hmm. yeah and so all those paintings are have disintegrated yeah it's really sad yeah and actually my dad um I think maybe it was a year ago that my dad called me because he was like hey like we have the, the painting that's in the garage it's like yeah. a portrait of me it's molded it's a nude portrait of me that has candy on top of it and like all this writing yeah he was like, uh, Miha, there's like bugs on it and <laughs> it's getting really gross. Like, I think I'm going to have to throw away. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and that was actually the last one. Oh, and it's really okay. funny because I think about like how I mainly deal with like me being an artist. I'm like having to keep my work in the garage. But then now that I'm thinking about it too, for undergrad, it was like the end of the of my undergrad, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with all these like monuments that I had. They had like real frosting on them, like yeah, six yeah, feet yeah. high. Yeah. And I remember like the director was like, "I can store them in my office, but you know, like you have to come get them at some point." I remember like I convinced my brother. I was like, "Please, I really bring like the sculptures back." He's <laughs> like, "Dude, like they're not going to." <laughs> the archive like just get rid of them and I was like I really need them and so I remember I made him drive three hours all the way to Champagne just to go get my sculptures and bring them back and then a year later have to throw them away <laughs> you're making your family deal with your past huh? <laughs> yeah exactly when I was an undergrad I did a few I guess sculpture paintings with Twinkies they have not changed <laughs> Really? Yeah. I mean, that's another thing too, right? Like how disgusting this food is. I mean, like when I do installations now and pipe onto the wall, like I don't have to actually really put anything on it because it sticks and becomes like super, super hard. Yeah. I think it's because the frosting that I was using in undergrad had milk and it's Mm -hmm. not like the processed frosting that that's why. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And now you pipe acrylic, right? I pipe acrylic, yeah. yeah. All acrylic. You gotta um, make those things last a little longer for the for the buyers, right? For the yeah, for the buyers, for my legacy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for my kids, for my unborn children. <laughs> so you went through grad school and then uh, you know, I met you in, in Miami for the Fountainhead. And how many years was that between the time that we met? That was a year after grad school. It was 2017. So I graduated in 2016. So it was, yeah, it was a year after. Yeah. At that point, I think you were starting to um, starting to get a lot of press. I know you were found on Instagram by, by the curator and that's how he selected you. And so, you know, you're doing all these wonderful work. And I know after we met in Miami, then you had Expo. And I think that's when things really started taking off. 
for you. You got you were um, selected at one of the like best shows by Hyperallergic in in the Chicago Expo. And you want to talk about like that particular moment when things were kind of happening really fast, both in your work but also in the exhibitions and the press that you were getting. Yeah, and I do think that Expo was like a, definitely a turning point. I think just to have a solo show in that exhibition that is in that space that is so much about collecting work as an art fair, you know, and then and having a booth by the Chicago Artists Coalition yeah, yeah, was like really amazing and having that space to really do whatever I want with the support of the Chicago Artists Coalition. I think because it's a nonprofit that supports artists that I had a residency there, you know, the Bolt residency, it was like really a different experience about having a show there that was not focused so much on it being like an art fair, but more yeah. experimental and, yeah. and open. It makes those exhibitions so exciting every year because yeah, yeah. that's like the base that it's starting from. But yeah, it was, you know, a really awesome opportunity too to like see the behind of the scenes of an art fair to be in that space. And yeah, I think things changed for me also in terms of like, my understanding of my position of being an artist in the art world, I feel like Uh I began to sort of understand. And I would also say that I began to understand some of these things in Miami. Really? You know, yeah, I think a little bit, just thinking about how our bodies move through these spaces and, you know, and so (laughs) I think Expo sort of like was another layer to that because I think thinking about money thinking about collecting in terms of like being an artist and making art is not like our priority and I think for many of us is not our top priority when we're in the studio thinking through ideas and you know trying to figure out like what the best medium is for us to get set idea out and yeah you know it's tricky when money is in the mix and Mm -hmm. in an art fair and just you know I think trying to figure out like what does that mean so I feel like that was like my first sort of introduction to that and um learning yeah yeah and that's Mm -hmm. what I loved about your installation because every time I go to art fair I get so depressed because I'm like my art doesn't fit here I think that's when I came across your installation I think that there was like this breath of fresh air because it didn't look like it belonged in an art fair in some sense right it was this installation that had things that didn't look like they were necessarily sellable in in a traditional art fair sense right they weren't like just paintings on walls and just sculptures on pedestals completely decontextualized from any sort of meaning you know and i think what was great was you couldn't find meaning in the art fair and so you just created your own environment basically you've created a context for your work to live in in spite of the fact that you you were in a place which whose sole purpose was to decontextualize so that it could be sold exactly and i think that there was some naiveness in that but <laughs> um, I'm happy that I went through with that installation, with that work in that specific moment. Yeah. Because I also think that it was very radical to do so, given the time. And then what was the reception while you were there? Like, I know you got the hyperallergic article, but what about talking with people going through the fair? Were they confused? Were they, yeah, what was that like? I think for, for the most part, you know, it was like well received and I was having great conversations with artists, curators. I think it was like the collector preview night or day. It was like during the day, it was before uh, Expo actually opened. Uh That was where I like 
filled the shoes of a gallery assistant curator that's like booth sitting and is having conversations with you know potential collectors yeah, yeah. and again I think that I was you know naive to those conversations and I was excited to talk about and share my work with other people and have conversations about it but I did come across racialized, racist comments. Collectors didn't necessarily know that I was the artist at first glance. Oh, and were oh just, okay. You know, saying, vocalizing their assumptions about my work and yeah. their very limited perspective on Mexican-American and indigenous people's craft practices, mm. things that were really unnecessary. And so I think that that was really eye-opening too. And disheartening, but I think not so not so disheartening now, given the art world environment that like we're a part of. And I guess these things are not so often like bluntly said to you, but I think that you feel them in lots of different ways. Yeah. In yeah. different settings. Yeah. Maybe yeah. in a more like muted kind of way. But mm -hmm. it felt like everything was very like heightened and made like hyper aware in that moment because money is yeah. the thing maybe you know it's like mm -hmm. it is the thing of that space right so after that experience i guess my thoughts of this kind of occurs a lot i assume with a lot of different artists of color sort of like how do you feel about you know making work in a sense or like you know creating trauma for these white tears right whenever we make work there's multiple audiences there's also the catharsis for ourselves for our familial history and also for our present history and potential future history and then there's also in terms of a cultural value and money value, market value is, you know, this idea of white tears, you know, how does that sort of play when you're making these decisions? You know, it's really important to think about who is going to collect the work, what specific work, like I want this person to collect. And I think being very specific and purposeful about that is important. You know, when I'm making the work, I'm not necessarily thinking about a white audience viewing my work or that I'm making it specifically for them. And I wouldn't say that the work is catering to trauma or giving white audience the ability to have like white tears over my work. But for me, I'm like so interested in archiving like my specific family history and making it known that yeah. this happened to my family because of your politics because of this mm -hmm. country's relations um with my family's country which have set the tone for violence and militarization and surveillance that still continues to go on um to this day but having said that i think that there are particular works that i feel more comfortable with selling to an institution or to an individual than others. I think it's important to be aware of that. Yeah, I mean, and in some sense, like you said, you're interested in this idea of the American dream, American identity, this connection between immigrant labor and U.S. consumerism, right? This idea of like eating, consumption, these like beautifully painted, frosted paintings. And then you have a lot of this material for like the fake gold chain. You know, how do you find yourself being drawn to what material and what setting when you're in the studio? How do you decide? all these different mediums i think it depends on what i'm working on specifically like what the scale is what ideas i'm researching um it starts there and then it starts with the research then it goes into drawing and then i think drawing is really where i start to like map mm. out 
what references I want to include, what sort of consumerist iconography, toy uh, iconography, references from like my childhood that I want to incorporate. And now it kind of feels like another material, like I'm pulling from a bag of different like paint colors when I'm creating a work, you know, that I'm drawing from like my different iconographies that mean something specific that have become like the lexicon of my paintings, you know, naturally over time from working with um, so much and creating like a new language that again, I think is sub- subverts itself from that trauma narrative mm-hmm. that these specific icons mean something specific to me that you don't necessarily have to know or identify with, but it is, it's nuanced. Yeah. I mean, one of, you know, one of the research that I really loved that maybe you could talk a little bit about is sort of like the, your interest in these shoes. I know you have this piece called the monument of the forgotten where you got all these found shoes and created an installation with it. And then also I know the Nike Cortez is this reoccurring symbol. Could you talk a little bit about those symbolisms and perhaps in that way, talk about how you talk about these subtle symbolisms and the way it enters and how people viewing it may not even know about these symbols and histories. Yeah, the references to shoes began with height maintenance, which is one of my installations from 2017 to 2019, actually the work that was at Expo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my way of referencing body specifically, you know, an extension of the body without actually having to include a figure within the work to reference the way in which my father crossed the US-Mexico border to reference, you know, individuals crossing shoes became uh, an iconography for that specifically. And so it started with referencing the Nike Cortez and then uncovering like the colonialist history that's behind the naming of the shoe. And through that research, really being interested in working with community again, like through workshops, having my work be more participatory in that way, Monuments of the Forgotten came about in 2020 when I had a solo show at Austin. It was actually right before COVID happened in January of 2020. Yeah. At a artist run gallery called Mass Gallery in Austin, Texas. And, uh-huh. you know, this was planned like a year ahead that I would go to Austin, install the show, and then I would put a call out for shoes for the community of Austin to donate them for the exhibition and then host workshops during the duration of the show to have the community come and learn how to pipe with me on and directly onto the shoes and the work is a anti-monument in that it's not trying to monumentalize the amount of individuals who have lost their lives crossing borders, specifically, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, as a sort of commemorative anti-monument where the shoes become portraits of individuals. And then there's also the collaborative community aspect of, you know, sharing knowledge, piping skills, and building the anti-monument together and it's you know it grows over time and space it's continued to grow after the exhibition at at mass Um, i was supposed to have a solo exhibition in minnesota but then because of covid it was canceled and so we started to do a lot of online virtual programming and i posted a national call for shoes and had shoes you know donated to me from all over the u.s that now I'm continuing to pipe and add the shoes to the monument. So it continues to grow even with 
uh, COVID restrictions. Yeah. And can you just sort of backtrack, can you quickly talk about the, what is the colonial history of the Cortez? Yeah. So the shoes are named after Hernan Cortez, who colonized and conquered Mexico is basically what it is. And so the name is just so ironic because then the shoes are worn often by brown and black folks who are often under so much surveillance. And so it's sort of like this uh, never ending circle of colonization. You know, also the shoe also having a history of being killed for for the shoes, right? And this sort of this idea of consumerism and capitalism and status as well. And so in that sense, yeah, it's like this crazy cycle, like you call it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you had your show, this solo show right before COVID. I know COVID stopped a lot of things, but it seems like I was looking through your your history and you have a whole bunch of shows happening right now. You have El Museo de Barrio Triennial, which was uh, reviewed by a lot of different people, including Holland Cotter and New York Times. You had a show, the DePaul Art Museum, uh, and then you had a show that just ended, the Center for Crafts, Sleight of Hand. Yeah, you have all this stuff going on. Um, and so I guess, what do you make of all this resurgence or celebration for Latinx art? Is this sort of a false representation by the institutions in response to the event? How do you view this sudden interest? You know, anytime there's a sudden interest by the institution, I'm always suspicious. Of course, just like the government. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the institutions that I've worked with so far on these initiatives, I think, are genuine and are doing the work in order to expand on their collections and exhibitions and to really think about, uh, you know, years long processes of, of having their museum actually be equitable. As far as the Musa del Barrio, you know, they've been having exhibitions every year, triennials that would exhibit artists from New York specifically, but then this year they expanded it to more of a national uh, exhibition that focuses on artists from all the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And so I think that they've been doing the work already, right? Like they are a museum that's focused on exhibiting artists who identify and don't identify as Latinx. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that this exhibition is really important because it does open the dialogue to artists nationally, like artists like myself who grew up in the Midwest, and Moline, you know, who made their way to Chicago and now can be part of survey of this kind that is putting Latinx artists on the map to sort of reclaim that we are part of American art history, really. I think that's sort of the aspect to these Latinx initiatives that I'm really interested in is that we continue to be placed on the map by reiterating that we are part of uh, U.S. history. And then, you know, there's other museums like the DePaul Art Museum that's here in Chicago that also started the Latinx Artist Initiative with Julie Rodriguez, who actually just left not too long ago to, to Berkeley. And they're doing a huge initiative also to expand their collection and have been collecting uh, Latinx artists based in Chicago and I believe outside of Chicago also to expand on their current collection, which I think is really important in terms of like changing the landscape of these institutions is if we're not represented in the collections and yeah. it's really, I think, difficult to change the art canon, right? If we're not even in the collections of these museums. And so I think both of the, of the museums that I've been working with are really doing the work. I can't 
speak on behalf of like other museums, but I, I would say that I always am really apprehensive also and critical um, as we should always be, you know, even whether it's a Latinx institution or not, I think that we should always be like apprehensive and critical about it because I don't want this to be um, an initiative that goes on for a couple of years and then gets placed on the back burner. Yeah. And then, you know, the next new hot topic comes up and that's the focus for the next couple of years. Yeah. But I think at this moment, there is so many of us that are in the art world that are curators, writers, art historians, artists, that it's going to be very difficult to forget about us. And I also think that, you know, our generation is so much about solidarity with other BIPOC folks that I think that that also is like a strength and really helps the visibility of ourselves and each other. So I think that that's really what's going to be a game changer with any initiative right now in terms of thinking about them long-term and really, you know, of um, burning down the way that we think about institutions and how they function that we can no longer continue going that route, that things really do need to change. Because at the end of the day, like they really are nothing without us. Yeah. And also I think going back to what you just said about this sort of solidarity, I think that solidarity allows for a change in multiple different ways, right? And I'm just thinking like in terms of how quickly the lexicon and word use of like Latinx from Latino, Latina, I just remember like two, three years ago, I just started seeing like writers, New York Times, Wall Street Journal suddenly using it. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I guess now it's, it's actually a thing and not just sort of something that's happening between very specific communities talking about this. And then that then spreads, you know, like you said, this sort of solidarity and then dialogue, which I think is probably the most important thing about this, right? Just being able to talk to each other, being able to listen to different voices. And in that sense, I think you're correct that this sort of idea of solidarity is probably one of the more powerful things that hopefully this generation will be able to sustain, right? Yeah, definitely. And I I think so. I feel hopeful in that way. Yeah. So do you have any, do you have any uh, plans moving forward? Are there any shows happening? I mean, I thought it was crazy that you've been at shows, those three shows in the middle of of COVID. And (laughs) I always thought everything had kind of come to a stop. So yeah, do you have anything happening moving forward? You know, was surprised with, um, especially, yeah, with the triennial happening and that was postponed for a year, but then ended up happening. So I mean, it's nice to see things begin to feel a little bit normal with, you know, while also like taking the necessary precautions. Um, It's nice to see art in real world. Um, But what do I have coming up? You know, so that show at the Depart Art Museum, Latinx American is up for a while. Estamos bien at Museo del Barrio is up until September. The show just opened up at Residency Art called The New Contemporaries Volume 2 that's up until June. And actually um, in the fall, I'm going to be having some work up at Mindy Solomon Gallery in Miami. Oh, wow. Um, and that'll be up for I remember a that few place. months. Yeah, I remember Mindy. So that'll be up for um, a couple of months and a couple other things that are up in the works, but wow. you know, not finalized where I can't share publicly, but no worries. Yeah. So my last question is sort of like, how do you manage 
your time. I know you mentioned this when I was talking with you and Justin like a few weeks ago and how like time is so important for you and you have these like set hours. And so how did you come to be able to manage all these different things? Yeah, well, it started by me uh, having to come to terms with the fact that I couldn't hold like a part-time job while also having my art practice full time. And I couldn't do it because it was physically taking a toll on my health. And I was at a privileged point where, you know, I had saved some money from, you know, my part-time jobs from like the last couple of years that I was able to make the decision of and and the risk of doing this full time. And so taking that leap was really, I think, the beginning of being able to like take on more more work without being overworked and also taking care of my health at the same time. And and I think if I would have a job right now outside of my studio practice, it would be very difficult to be doing all of these things while also like having the admin work and then trying to prioritize my health. So I think that it really is a privilege that I can go to my studio at this moment, five days a week and, and have that be my priority. And really trying to think of ways that I can continue to sustain that, you know, through continuing to teach eventually workshops, lectures, et cetera. But that was really the way that I was able to finally like prioritize my time a lot better without feeling burnt out. Yeah. 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 No, it's important, this sort of time management. Yeah. And it, it was a huge risk that I had like no tools or really advice on how to do it. I just was like, you know what? You just made the leap. (laughs) I'm going to take this risk. Yeah. I'm just going to take the leap. And if it doesn't work out, I mean, I can always get a job. You know, I, I felt like that was always like a possibility and it was before COVID. Like I I think that I would definitely not have taken that leap during COVID. Yeah. Um, So it was about a specific moment that felt the right time to do it. And I guess now it would be like two years ago. I yeah. Took that leap. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, two years. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, um, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. Is there anything? Did I miss anything? Do you do any plugs? Uh, shout out to Justin. Justin Favela. We love you, yeah. Justin. Yeah. Hi, Justin. And I just I think we should have another phone call soon. <laughs> okay. So we gotta get on that. Okay. And where can listeners find you? You can find me at uh, com and on Instagram at evetmiorga. All right. Again, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, hope to finally go back and visit you in Chicago whenever this thing is COVID finally passes and travel. And hopefully you, Justin, and I will be able to meet sometime in the future. And yeah, I can't wait for that to happen. Yeah, me too. And thanks again for inviting me. It was so fun to talk to you about a lot of different interconnected subjects that are part of this thing called life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That was so cheesy. (laughs) I can't help it. But but I love it. I love it. Oh, I wanted to add something else. I don't oh, know if I can. Also, yeah. I feel like you really have to make me another lemon pie. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. A key lime pie. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> key lime pie. Sorry. Yeah. Key lime pie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. For, for Yeah. Yeah. 
for the listeners, I, I made a key lime pie for Yvette while we were in Miami, and uh, apparently it was a hit <laughs> while we were watching. It was the first time. Yeah, while we were watching. What were we watching? Oh, yeah, Get Out. We were watching Get Out. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Key lime pie in Miami. <laughs> Very important. Yeah, yeah. Well, next time, next time, I'll have a key lime pie ready for you. I promise. Awesome. All right. Please. <laughs> Thank you, Yvette. Bye. Bye. Seeing color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Siwon Chung. Additional help with editing by Tokyo Hong and Mandy Tong. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. And give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.